They're coming to get you, Barbara. Gone. Gone the form of man. Rise the demon. Etrigan. Welcome you back to Fuck You Hexed, podcast where me, Anthony Jerome M., talks about spooky shit, spooky movies, spooky content, recommendations, reviews, rants, drinking, shrimp, all that. Thank you so much for joining me. If you're here for the first time, once again, I'm Anthony Jerome M., and this is Fuck You Hexed. Like I said previously, the podcast where I discuss shit that spooks me, the spooky content that I particularly enjoy consuming. And today, uh, I'm going to be trying something a little bit different here. So this is very, very, very experimental for me. And you know, I've already said it before, I'm very sensitive about my shit. So I have no idea how this is going to go. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to properly portray the points of view that that I want to. But I'm going to try. So there's that. All right. So I think, yeah, I think I'm just going to go ahead and get into it. And I'm going to tell you... Today I'm going to be discussing the 1997 Robert Kurtzman film, Wishmaster. Um, This movie has a... I don't want to say that this movie has a special place in my heart, but this movie definitely has a special place in my memory. Uh, Because of this movie, it has impacted how I interact with people when they discuss wishes. And I mean wishes like when someone says, Oh, I, I wish it would rain today. I remember when I was younger... My, I would always say things like that. Oh, I wish I had this new toy or I wish I had these kind of shoes. And like immediately my mom would say, you'd waste a wish on that. So because of that, I've always been super careful about how I use that word because like, no, I wouldn't. Like if someone if someone was out here granting wishes, I probably wouldn't waste a wish on that. Absolutely not. And it reminds me of this one comic I've seen. It's like comic strip rather. This comic strip that I saw as a kid where... <laughs> somebody said oh i wish the fax machine would work and then the fax machine started working and then somebody who saw that said okay i wish i was a fly and they turn into a fly because they took it as like okay well if this person's wish for the fax machine to start working came true then let me go ahead and make my own wish so i've always been because of that comic strip and because of my mom i've always been super careful about when i use the word wish Uh, Just in case someone is out there listening, and just in case I did waste my one wish, I just assume it's one wish. It could be three, but like, I feel like you know if you have three wishes or not. Sometimes someone's just feeling nice and they grant a wish. So yeah, this movie is definitely the definition of be careful what you wish for. And there's four of them. Two of them are good. The fourth one is fucking batshit, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But it's a, <laughs> it's not a shitty movie. Uh, man, I, I might have to walk that back. Listen, it's a total departure from the other movies. It's fucking wacky as shit. And I don't know who approved it. Like, it's just so, it's lower quality in every aspect. So, like, there's four of them. The first two are good. The third one's whatever. The fourth one, It's not that it's so bad it's good. It's just like, it's so bad you have to see that this thing exists. So that's as far as I'm going to go on recommending three and four. But the one and two, absolutely. I definitely think they're worth a watch. 
I'm only going to be talking about the first one in detail, but I would say one and two are pretty, I would say they're interesting. They do a fantastic job of what's the, no, I was going to say circumventing, but they add, it's like Grimm's fairy tales, how Disney pretty much sanitized all those stories. This is sort of like an unsanitized version of a genie. So it's always, it, it, I was going to say it's more realistic to what Jin's and uh, where genies actually came from. But I don't want to actually say that because jinns are from an entirely different culture. So the possibility that what they are did get totally fucked up by like the Hollywood movie making machine and just made something cultural like a total monster. But, you know, it it's, you know, they're not all blue and they're not all Robin Williams. Some people aren't, not some people, but these things aren't necessarily granting you wishes because it's going to help you out. It's to meet their own needs. And we see that in this movie. So like, even if you don't like the movie, there is a lot to like about it. So yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to like about it in regards to having a villain that we've only previous previously seen in American culture as totally willing to help you and you know help you get what you need with no regard for what they need. Also, the effects in this movie are absolutely fantastic, and you will never really hear me say I'm, I'm trying to get better at it, but you'll never really hear me say, "Oh yeah, the the visual effects were totally great. Like that's awesome." I have to change. I'm because of this movie. I'm now changing the way I think because this movie came out in 1997. That's almost 30 years ago. It's about 25 years ago. And the practical effects in this movie are fantastic. They're fucking scary. I remember them scarring me as a kid because I had never seen anything in my life that gruesome. And we'll get into it a little bit later. But uh, with like, there's a with the exception of about two scenes, all of the visual effects in this movie still hold up. They are great. They are creepy. They are fucking hard to look at at times. And this is another reason why I also think number two is good. Because in regards to practical effects, they're even better than part one. And they're even more gruesome than part one. So yeah, a little bit more detail about the movie. A little bit more about what I'm trying to do here. I'm going to try to give you this movie, not just word for word what's happening, but also I'm going to try to have Jerome be my co-host here. So at random points, you're going to... I hope it sounds like a, a different enough voice to where you can distinguish... There is a difference between Sober Anthony and Drunk Anthony, a.k.a. Jerome. So there's going to be certain points where it's me giving you the rundown, and then it's going to be Jerome chiming in. I said Jerome's in the house. Me too. (laughs) Go on. I'm sorry. As the co-host. So, all right. So Robert Kurtzman directed this movie, Wishmaster, 1997. He also did a lot of the the special effects makeup in this movie. I've never seen any of the other movies that he directed. I did a quick little search, but what I did notice is that he also did a lot of, uh, I don't, I don't recall too many other movies that he directed, but he did work on the special makeup effects in so many other movies. I'm about to give you a list and this it's barely, it's barely a fraction of the movies that he's worked on. Faculty, House on Haunted Hill, 13 Ghosts, John Carpenter's Vampires, the Devil's Rejects, and like I said, literally so much more. Like, I don't know if this man is really a director, but this man is definitely an artist when it comes to his makeup and special effects. Like, he's fant- I that 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 person has true skill and true true artistry, and that's something that I think needs to be appreciated because we see it throughout so much of this movie and and the next. This movie was also 
the executive producer of this movie was Wes Craven, which I just found kind of interesting because we all know how great he is. If you don't, go ahead and do the Google because you, sh- you should probably know his name by now. Wes Craven is responsible for so many of the things that we enjoy as horror fans. So also rest in peace, Wes. For Wes, yes, <laughs> we love you. Now, this is the only entry in this franchise that has his name on it, so I don't know if he, you know, he's an artist. I don't know if he wanted to put his name on anything else that he thought might be shitty, or maybe they just didn't ask him about it because the first one got them the recognition that they needed, the first Wishmaster, but his name is only on this movie, and we love to see it. You see it early on, and you're like, oh, man, they brought Wes Craven into this, and you... I think it helps. <laughs> it helps. You're like, okay, you know what? Wes Craven, we love you. Uh, I'll give this movie at least 30 minutes. One of the things that needs to happen is a special shout out to Andrew Divoff. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he plays the main antagonist in this movie and the second movie and does an incredible job of making his voice sound creepy. Um, it's my personal opinion that in these movies, he has a haunting presence super creepy voice as well it's super deep super creepy and he's the kind of person who asks you a question and you immediately start thinking about "Ooh, do i want to do i want to answer that like I, I i don't like the way you 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 phrased that you're making me feel a little bit weird like let's just say oh i want some chicken nuggets and he'd pop up out of nowhere oh yeah do you oh well i mean i'm not so sure anymore but like Why'd you have to ask me like that? Just Andrew Divoff, totally creepy presence. He is fantastic in this movie and the second one. He is a fantastic gin. He looks, like I said, I can't express, he looks scary. Stuff of nightmare shit, honestly. Like, on Halloween, if you saw him, you'd be like, "Mm, your costume's too good. I'm gonna go. (laughs) You have fun with whatever you're doing. I didn't recognize, I, I looked him up as well, and I didn't recognize anything else that I've seen him in. But I know for a fact, this guy just randomly pops up on TV roles. I've seen him so many times where I'm, I immediately turn into that Leonardo DiCaprio meme, like just pointing and, you know, snapping and pointing at the screen. Like he has a lot of those kind of roles. And once again, the the main reason I want to talk about this movie is because, oh, in the artwork, in the artwork of this podcast, Fuck You Hex, done by Evil Flynn on Twitter, Brian Demarest. We'll get into that later. Um. In the artwork, in the in the corner, there is a um, a genie's lamp, and that is because I am at because of my mom always asking me, "Oh, you'd waste a wish on that?" When I say I wish for something, I have then put made that part of my personality. So whenever someone in like the Podmortem Discord or just in public that I know, of course, says, "Oh, I wish X Y Z." I will materialize. I'll pop up out of nowhere and say like, oh, you'd waste a wish on that. So a couple of the wishes I granted, um, Travis, one of the hosts of Podmortem, he now owns a a haunted In-N-Out. I don't know how you pay ghosts, but you know what? That's his wish. It's for him to figure out. I don't give a fuck. So what else have I granted? (laughs) I granted, someone said, oh, I wish I had a cigarette. And I granted that wish. Like, I handed them a cigarette. And then I'm like, man, you you used all your wishes. Like you, So I don't know why. I like having fun with stuff like that. When somebody, like, if, you, if you're going to wish for something, wish for something crazy. Wish for something outlandish. 
don't wish for something super simple because then if that wish gets granted, you just have to assume you're out of wishes. So just keep that in mind. I'm going to get into the movie now and I'm going to start. I'm going to we're, we're going to start off with the opening scene. Wishmaster 1997, Robert Kurtzman. The film starts off in a very old room, looks medieval to us as the opening credits appear on the screen. We see scrolls, candles, old metal items, uh, a hand grabbing various ingredients and putting them into a bowl, grinding them with a mortar and pestle, and we see the mixture go into a mold that's then exposed to extreme heat. And this causes that mixture to form into a pristine gem, jewel. I believe it's an opal. Yeah, I believe it's an opal. And we don't know what this is for yet. And suddenly we get the, the, the prologue of the movie. Now the narrator, who's Angus Scrim, who has this massive history with horror, at the very least dating back from the 70s. If you Google this guy and you look up some of the work he's been in, you've seen a bunch of stuff that Angus Scrim has been a part of. So at the beginning of this movie, after we see that person making their mixture, making the opal, um, it, it's explained to us by him, God, God breathed life into the universe. The light gave birth to angels. The earth gave birth to man. The fire gave birth to the jinn. Creatures condemned to dwell in the void between worlds. One who wakes the jinn will receive three wishes, but the third wish will free legions of jinn on earth. Fear one thing in all that is. Fear the jinn. So I gotta say here, a lot of people already know that the jinn pretty much originated American people's understanding of what a genie is. Tales of the jinn are very, very fucking old, like they're pre-Islamic Arabian origin. And I mention that just because I would like to point out that I'm a big fan of ancient creatures, sprites, entities. And what we're dealing with in this movie is exactly that, some ancient fucking creature. So, yes. It is the year 1127 in Persia. The jinn asks the Persian emperor to make his second wish. The emperor wants to be astonished. He wants to be shown wonders, and the jinn more than happily obliges, as he as you wish, he says. We see people who are inside the emperor's palace as the wish is being granted in full panic mode. Panicking, running, screaming, literally, we have no idea what's going on, but it's because of this wish. We see one man get thrown across the room into a wall and is turned to stone and becomes part of the wall. As people try to flee, one man dressed in all green looks up horrified. He's trying to get to the emperor and we don't, e- we don't even really know why yet. He tries to make his way through the screaming crowds of people, people and people are dropping dead as well. This is all a part of the wonders and the astonishment that the dr- that the that the jinn has granted the emperor. We see more people crying, some people are bleeding, some of them have cuts on their face, and we get a very fucking cool yet extremely horrifying moment of someone being turned into wood like like a tree almost. And they're clearly in distress because they no longer have a mouth and we hear that muffled screaming like 
it first of all it looks fantastic this looks like some fairy woodland creature however it's a human being turned into a tree of sorts and they're suffering and it looks it you i don't know maybe it's just the acting maybe i just think too much of this but it if somebody doesn't have a mouth and they're screaming like mouthless but to me that's so horrifying because you can't even properly express how afraid you are that's being muffled that's being taken from you so it it's horrifying to see cool cool looking but horrifying to see so i'm going to interrupt this scene really used to scare the fuck out of me as a kid uh, because there is so much going on here and none of it is good it's 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 a fucking delight of terrors it's uh horror as horrible as it is fantastic so we go on to see more of the quote-unquote wonders such as a man's stomach having turned into a creature trying to eat a woman's arm. A man grabs the man in green we saw earlier saying, help me, sorcerer, help me. All right. Now we have a little bit more idea into, into who he is. The sorcerer basically says, don't fucking touch me and watches the man as he collapses to the ground in full pain. After falling to the ground, we see the skeleton of this man brutally escape his body. So it's like the skeleton got a life of his own and was escaping the skin prison. And then not only that, it then goes off to terrorize more people in the castle as if they weren't already terrorized enough. It's like the skull left the skeleton, skeleton left his body and now it's you know, smoking with cigarettes, causing trouble, mayhem ensues. Like fuck. I just want to know what part of the wonders and astonishment is this is this supposed to be because I don't know. I think it's a little unfair to that person that somebody makes a wish and then your skull comes out, your skeleton comes out of your body. It doesn't seem fair. So immediately before finding the emperor's throne room, the sorcerer is stopped by a, by a man who appears to have been turned into a sort of serpent. So it's like half man, half snake creature. And the, this creature is begging the sorcerer to lift the curse. And the sorcerer has absolutely no power in this situation. The sorcerer can only do what his mission is, and that's find the emperor. Now, as the sorcerer makes his way to the emperor's throne room, we hear the emperor's horrified screaming saying, this isn't what I wanted. Like, I, I didn't ask for this. And the djinn just ever so calmly says, oh, okay, well, use your third wish. Set things right. And before the emperor is able to make his third wish, the sorcerer busts into the room, the throne room, and explains the consequences of the third wish, that it will, that it will unleash untold horrors and new masters. And the djinn is like, yep, like that's the whole goal, baby. And the sorcerer then reveals the fire opal, which I had to look that up. It's called the fire opal. And this, this, is, the, this is the stone that we see being made at the very beginning. And with the opal, he casts a spell, pulling the djinn inside and trapping him. So, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, if I was turned into a half-snake person, uh, the emperor definitely is going to have to toss me some coin for, you know, wishing so recklessly. I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just a little upset about that. Like, somebody else making a wish and now I'm fucked? I don't like it. I don't like it at all. So we're now, after seeing all this, we're now in present-day America. 1997. Oh, I said it was like 20 years ago, but it's 35 years ago. Yeah, no, 97. Yeah, no, this is 20, This is 25 years ago. I don't know who was writing the notes, but he's a little upset. He was a little wrong. So, 
played by the amazing Stuff of Nightmares, Robert England. His character, Raymond Beaumont, is supervising workers, lowering a box containing an antique statue of Ahura Mazda. They're taking this box. They're like on the docks, a shipping area. Um, Robert England's character, Raymond Beaumont, is supervising as a crane operator takes this antique statue off the boat and puts it onto the dock so they can then take it to like their museum or private collection or whatever wherever this is going and one of the things i found interesting is ahura mazda it translates into lord of wisdom i don't really know how that applies to anything else but i just it's just something that i appreciated a little fact i liked so the crane operator who's lowering the statue from the ship to the dock his name is mickey torelli this guy, I don't know if I love him or I hate him, but this guy's drunk and he's on the job. And like while he's clearly drunk, we see him pour some liquor from his flask into his coffee cup. And then we proceed to see him using the crane to lower the statue in kind of like a pretty shitty way. And so before the cargo is even lowered off the boat, Mickey manages to cause it to bump into the side of the boat. I don't know boat lingo, so, like, I don't know if that's called, like, the stern. I don't know, but the side of the boat, right? Yeah. So this causes Raymond Beaumont and his assistant, Ed Finley, played by Ted Raimi, to absolutely fucking lose it. Like, you just bumped an antique thing into a boat. Like, it's it's not a Jimi Hendrix poster. Like, handle that shit with some fucking care. And you just filled your fucking coffee cup with some liquor. Like, I'm going to need you to act right here. So they, they understandably so, they fucking lose it. And the assistant, Ed Finley, played by Ted Raimi, like, from the dock, he begins shouting at Mickey for not handling this item with care. He's like, does the word dumbass mean anything to you? and mickey like he's not even like he's slightly panicked but more annoyed than anything else he just responds with like up yours like no man you're you're drinking on the job like don't, not up anything like do your job right and as he says up yours he this causes his him to spill his spiked coffee onto the device he was using to control the crane so this causes the crane to sort of like short circuit and not work as it should it malfunctions and basically drops the cargo that antique statue the the device malfunctions causing the crane to lose control or causing mickey to lose control of the crane and this drops the cargo directly onto the assistant ed finley and this crushes him to death and we see robert england's character just like wince in pain and it's not entirely clear if it's because his assistant was just killed or if it's because he just lost this fucking antique artifact that he will no longer be able to, you know, enjoy. So a dock worker sees the like this antique completely damaged and decides to take advantage of a pretty much like the stir of panic that's caused. Somebody just died. This antique has just been destroyed and people are panicking all over the dock. Now, what he notices is that inside the statue was the fire opal that we saw earlier, and he takes it. Pretty shitty, but honestly, I, I kind of understand. Probably nobody even knew it was there. So it's like, hey, you, you do what you got to do. So we don't see, we don't see the dock worker uh, pawn the stone itself, but we do see is 
the owner of a pawn shop, he he walks into what's called Regal Auctioneers, and he's he's gone to Regal Auctioneers to sell the stone that he that somebody just tried to pawn, and this is where Nick Merritt, played by Chris Lemon, instructs. Uh, he lets he lets um he lets the pawn shop owner know that he's gonna have his best person on it. Alexandra Amberson, played by Tommy Tammy Lauren, he says, "I'm gonna get my best girl on it. She's gonna examine it, and don't worry." They they make a deal. I think he. I don't remember if it's like two thousand or four thousand dollars, but I think I think Nick Merritt makes the punch up owner an offer, and of course he's more than happy to have it. He says, "Oh yeah, some guy said he found it at his grandmother's house after she passed away," and then of course, like. The owner of Regal Auctioneers, Nick Merritt's like, mm, yeah, sure. I- I'm sure they all tell you that. And it, it, he's right to be suspicious. Like, oh, wow, they just randomly came into possession of this stone? Cool. Sure, I'm going to believe you, but it takes two to lie. The person who lies and the person who believes it. It's my opinion, anyway. So we cut to an extreme tennis tennis practice session an extreme tennis practice session where we meet our main character, Alex. That's, you know, the owner of Regal Auctioneers. That's his best girl. She's our main character. She's practicing tennis. So clearly she has a life outside of work. So after a few volleys back and forth with who she's practicing with, uh, they decide to call it a day. Now, as they're wrapping up, you know, they're wiping the sweat off themselves and they're talking about, oh, good game, blah, 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 whatever the fuck you talk about after you play a sport with someone. So they're winding down, and the man she was playing with asks her out on a date. And she has to remind him, like, hey, we're we're just friends. And she try she tries to tell him, like, it's not you, it's me. Um, and he just he persists. He like the fucking creep that he is, and she has to just be straight up with him. She says, I don't know if this was just a lie to sort of like placate him or if this was the actual truth which either way the fact that you have to lie to a man who wants a date because he won't take no for an answer that's one thing right but then there's also what she says and what she says to what she says to him is i'm just afraid of losing what little i have and that includes you and if you really are this person's friend you have to understand just how fucking heartbreaking that is because this person doesn't think that they have much and then here you go and realistically here's the thing the reason why you want to date your friend is because you want to fuck there's you can't convince me otherwise like what's what's wrong with friendship if you yeah so just a word of advice if your friend says they don't want to date you please do not press the issue further it's my personal opinion that there is no such fucking thing as being put in the friend zone friends can always become more but if you disguise yourself as someone's friend and you get upset when they don't want to fuck or when they don't want to date or have a romantic thing with you, you are never a friend to that person. And this might be TMI, but personally, this is why I've never been friends with my exes when we break up. It's like, oh, can we still be friends? No, because I never wanted to be your friend. I pursued you romantically. That's the type of relationship that I want with you. And so uh, I won't get into it further, but it's like, hey, if you're coming to someone as a friend, be a friend. If you want more than that, make your intentions clear. If you don't do that, you're a fucking weirdo and you're going to be disappointed because you lied. So, yeah, 
I, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So honestly, just stop trying to fuck your friends just because like you want to get your dick wet. Like if you think your relationship can be more, have at it. But like fucking relax. So now we're Alex after having turned down her quote unquote friend. She's now actually at Regal Auctioneers at work and she's examining the opal. It's magnificent, she says, which true it is. I'm, I don't know much about gems, but it looks great. And her boss leaves her to continue to examine the stone just to make sure that, you know, she he wants to make sure she examines it properly so he can sell it for the highest price, of course, as one does. Now, as she's examining it, she thinks it's a little dirty. And like how you normally do with glasses, how you like breathe on it and then use your shirt to clean it. She does that sort of thing. She breathes, on, she breathes on the stone and she rubs it on her shirt as to like clean it. Like how people do with a genie's lamp in American culture. And this wakes the djinn. Alex sees something inside the jewel and decides that I don't know what I'm looking at. She doesn't know if she's looking at like an impurity. She doesn't know if the stone is flawed. She doesn't know if this means that it's total garbage. So what she does is she decides that she's going to leave it with a friend who asked her out on a date. Turns out his name's Josh Aikman. It turns out he's actually a local college professor. I don't know if he's like a geologist. I don't know if he, I don't exactly know if he's, if he's a geologist, but I didn't quite get his title. I do know, though, he has the tools to examine the stone for impurities, anomalies, things of that nature. And Josh, once again, being the fucking weirdo, asks if he'd like if if Alex would like to stay while he conducts his examination. Uh, She says no because she has to go coach her girls basketball team. Sure. But it's just like. You're here you go again, like you're trying you're trying again to like. I don't know. It's it's just very upsetting. Like, if you are friend, like, why does she think you're friends, and why do you keep trying to date her? Like, how are you presenting yourself, or is she totally misunderstanding you? I don't know. I I I just I always hate the situation, and like, it's '97, so people like this weren't seen as assholes. They were just like, oh, boys will be boys. You know, of course, why wouldn't he want to date you? You have a great job, good personality. Like, no, he wants to fuck. Like, if he liked having her in his life. F- friendship would be fine i could go on and on but i i'm I'm gonna relax myself now this part right here i have to say i have a friend renee i love you uh you're one of my friends i love you so much renee loves a fucking research scene especially like when people have to go to like the local library and research using the microfiche to get information that they didn't have before i'm the exact same way when it comes to 90 scenes that take place in a science lab. Like, I cannot explain to you enough how much I love watching a shitty-ass computer, a shitty-ass computer with their shitty generated images analyzing stuff. And don't even fucking get me started if the shit says, has a robot voice and says, like, 37% analyzed. I love that shit. And this is what we get right here. So as Josh is collecting his data, the gem explodes destroying the lab and releasing the gin. Josh is wounded, really not understanding what's happened. And like his, his lab is a mess. He's in pain. And that's pretty much the only thing he does know is that he's in pain. And through the smoke, he sees this absolutely horrid 
grotesque-looking creature sit slithering on the ground. The creature, the djinn, knows that knows just like exactly how much pain Josh Josh is in, and lets Josh know, "Hey, I can make it stop. Like that's that's not going to be a problem." And all Josh would need to do in order to ease his suffering is ask. Now he doesn't even have to say "I wish." He just has to say that he wants the pain to stop. And so the djinn, the you know, the djinn says, "I can make your pain stop. All you have to do is ask." And Josh is like, "Yes, yes, yes. I, I will love the the suffering to stop." And the djinn responds with, "As you wish." And this this causes the. <laughs> This is where we first find out that the jinn, well, no, not first find out, but this is where we where we get more of an idea that the jinn is going to grant your wish, just not in the way that you want. Like, yeah, the pain's gonna stop, but Josh is dead now. Like, <laughs> he's no, he's no longer capable of feeling pain. So that's how that's you know how, that's how the jinn does business. Like, if you want your wish to happen as you want. You're going to have to word it a bit correctly. You're going to have to word it correctly because the jinn is not going to be doing you any favors. What we also see that granting the wish has healed the jinn from this disgusting, slithering, grotesque, baby Voldemort version of itself to a version of itself that, like, it's not entirely unbangable. I mean, I wouldn't, but, like, I probably could be convinced to. I don't know. I'm sorry. Uh <laughs> So yeah, the djinn restores from this horrid baby version of itself to it's definitely more healed. It has a more adult-looking frame, and so we can only assume that this that this djinn does grant does get power from granting wishes. Just once again, I do want to mention the creature design here because this design is fucking great. It looks horrifying. Not only that, it's better in the second one, but here it's still fucking creepy. And there's not many movies that I enjoy from the 90s that still look as great now as they did then. I can only imagine what my childhood self thought seeing this fucking demon on screen and this shit look like, you know, it looked like they hired a demon. That's what it, they, you, that's what it looks like. So it's, it still looks great. All right. So we're only 20 minutes in, and I didn't want to re reveal this quite yet, but mostly when it comes to how the djinn grants wishes, I'm on his side. I I'm sorry to say that. H however, I don't like people not having to say, I wish. I just feel like if there was some sort of like lawsuit that could be filed in like magical court, like the djinn would instantly lose because he's not granting wishes. He's just doing what people say. Like, yes, I want my house to be clean, but I didn't wish for that. Like, I wish for the ability to expertly manipulate gravity any way I want. But like, you're just like, oh, I want cotton candy and you give it to me. Like, you're not granting a wish. Like, you're just following my orders. Like, get it together. As we see Josh being the first to deal with the djinn, so as we see Josh being the first to pretty much be subjected to the Jin's torment, Alex is trying to call him at this exact same time on a payphone. Remember payphones? So she gets his answering machine and says that she has a bad feeling. She's she has a bad feeling and she wants to reach out to him because she thinks something's wrong with what's something's wrong with what's going on in his lab. 
And as Alex is dying due to his wish being granted of having his pain and suffering end, we see that there's some sort of psychic connection between the djinn, only she has no clue what she's seeing. This is what led to her bad feeling. So we cut to Alex rushing to what's now what what is now Josh's crime scene, and she's immediately aware that he's been killed. She's informed of Josh's death by Lieutenant Nathanson, and she's panicking, she's freaking out. Of course, your friend just died. What's not to freak out about? So we see that scene, she arrives at the crime scene, she's held back by police, she's informed of what's happened. We then cut away from Alex and come to a homeless man who's asking for spare money, and he states that he used to be an altar boy. Now, does this seem... Does anybody else recognize this, where where that's from? Because it's very reminiscent of that scene from The Exorcist when the person like who looks like they're experiencing homelessness asks for money, is like, can you help out an old altar boy father? I'm a Catholic. <laughs> and so that's that's all I could think of, like when he's like, can you help out an old altar boy? He's like, okay, sure. So this takes place outside of a pharmacy. And the woman that the homeless man was asking for money, she like, she's distraught. She enters the pharmacy in a hurry. And this causes the pharmacist to come outside and give the homeless man a piece of his mind. And the homeless man says, well, I hope you die, you sack of shit. I hope you die and I hope you float down a fucking gutter so I can piss on you. And as the homeless man walks away, he's met by the gin who's just chilling in the alleyway. And he asks the man to explain. Did you really mean all those things you said? What would you do to have them come true? And the homeless man states that he only has a cigarette and handshake right now. But after a little more digging, the djinn says, But you have a soul. What would you have happen to him? Like, really? Enjoy it. What would you really, what would you really have happen to this man? And after thinking about it, the man responds, Hmm. If only he'd get cancer and die. <laughs> you know, just just a little cancer, right? Yeah. And the djinn responds, as you wish. So we're back now to the pharmacist who's trying to fill someone's prescription. Now, I don't know if you ever watched the 90s trivia show called Street Smart. But if you have, then you know exactly who the pharmacist is talking to. That's Frank Nicotero, host of that show. Um, the show wasn't good. But it was fun, and I remember it, so we're mentioning it. Yes. <laughs> so the doctor begins to writhe in pain as Alex, in her mind, has a front row seat to everything that's going on. The pharmacist undergoes intense pain and death while the homeless man is outside of the pharmacy watching it. And so, like, it's this is a pretty this is a pretty great scene. Like, it, I mean. It's it's a little hard to watch because this man looks like he's dying before your eyes in like a supernatural way. And so it's just very like I said the effects here are still pretty great. Like this looks I don't know, it looks like if the movie Thinner was put in fast forward. Like just just that process just really quick. So as the homeless man is watching the djinn asks him was it worth it? And just in absolute terror the homeless man is like what the fuck did you do and he runs he drops his cigarette that he's smoking and he's screaming and just like cool as a fucking cucumber 
the djinn picks up the cigarette and it's like run and he says run insect run and tell those you will what you will tell them there is something loose in their city something which feeds off wishes <laughs> i'm trying to do his voice and i know i can't like my voice can't go that low but it's like <laughs> it's just so proper creepy i love it so much so we're back with alex as she's trying to unwind from the horrors that she's just witnessed in person and mentally. Like, she's got these weird images of people dying in her head. Not only that, but her friend who was trying to fuck her just died. So, like, she's she's distraught. Understandably so. Like, who wouldn't be? And it's we- Okay, here's what's fucked up. She's a little upset that she turned him down for a date. Like, she's... She like tell like she you see her telling herself like oh maybe if I would have accepted his date, he would still be alive now. Don't fucking do that to yourself. She's like doesn't understand that. Well, I'm not gonna explain her feelings, but in my opinion, she's just incredibly sad that he's gone, and she thinks that had she gone out with him, that maybe he'd still be alive. So this is where she begins to theorize that the stone that she gave him to examine is what caused his death. So Alex has read the local newspaper up to this point and she knows about the drunk crane operator mickey torelli and she knows about that entire incident and what she then begins to do is she tracks down the dock worker and she she tracks she tracks them down because she knows that they're the one he's the one who originally pawned the stone so she tracks the worker from the docks down to the docks she gets more information about pretty much who was responsible for this antique structure who wanted it and this is where she also finds out like he stole the stone from that structure so this eventually leads her back to raymond beaumont aka robert england and she's trying to get more information on what's going on because clearly this stone that came from your antique it's causing nothing but trouble so she gets to as close as the source that she can robert england and upon greeting <laughs> upon greeting him, she starts off with, I'm sorry for what happened. To which he responds, Oh yes, one of a kind. And like side-eyeing the fuck out of him, Alex is like, We are talking about your assistant, right? And Raymond, Robert England character, Robert England's character is like, Oh yes, 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 I, uh, my assistant, yeah, that's exactly who we're talking about. Which, because of this scene, I now understand the reason why he wasn't fucking... The reason he was wincing at the beginning of the movie was because of his antique, not the fucking human life. That's no longer... <laughs> the human life that got taken away. That That's peanuts compared to this statue, right? So... She doesn't really have much luck with Raymond in finding out about the origins of the opal and the djinn. But he does send her off to his friend, Wenley Derleth, played by Jenny O'Hara. She's she's a folklore professor. Now, before Alex leaves, Raymond invites her to a party. He was going to be having this party to celebrate the acquisition of this statue. And the party is no longer for the statue. But since he already paid all the deposits, might as well have the party go on. And honestly, I kind of understand that. Like, hey, I just ordered 100 pounds of shrimp cocktail. Like, we're going to eat it. So the party's happening. I get it. I'm right there with you. 
So upon getting the information, the contact information to get in contact with Wendy Derleth, she, Alex, does find her. She's at the local college, and she begins asking Wendy questions about the history of the gym and what is this and because Alex is literally like fucking shaking her boots and she wants to know what can be done about what the fuck is happening here and this is where Wendy explains she actually knows the history of the gym and she tells her that she tells Alex the gems about it was written about 900 years ago and a court sorcerer imprisoned an evil spirit within a creature that can that occupies a space between worlds a jinn. She goes on to explain the nature of the jinn and explains that a jinn grants wishes in exchange for souls. But as jinns are demonic in nature, the wishes will be twisted into curses for the jinn's amusement. So just a side note here, according to everything that I've read, um, they are not demonic in nature. They're literally just like people. They can be good, bad, utter assholes. Uh, I just kind of thought it was important to mention that um, because I don't really need a white person telling me something from another culture is evil. Like, uh, I've had enough of that. Thanks. So Alex learns that the jinn needs to power the gem with human souls and then grants her, the person who originally released him, three wishes before he can open the gateway to release his fellow jinn on Earth. While Alex is finding out more information about the jinn, we actually see that the jinn is at the local morgue for the purpose of stealing someone's face so he can shapeshift into them. Shapeshifting, I do want to mention, is something that jinn are known for. Well, according to the things I've read, right? You know, I'm not an expert on this, on this, but something that jinn are known for is shapeshifting. So this isn't some kind of reach to make him more terrifying. This is actually within the lore. So that's something I appreciate. Now, the jinn is interrupted from stealing someone's face, the face of a dead man at the morgue, scaring someone who works there. It's an employee. I don't know if they're a coroner. Is mortician the right word? Morgue guy. Yeah, let's call him that. So the employee of the morgue walks in on the jinn, hunched over a dead body, and rightfully so, freaks the fuck out. He's like, I don't think you're supposed to be here. And the jinn sees the employee and just like, the employee is clearly afraid, and the jinn asks him, is this something you wish to not see? And the jinn grants the wish, because the guy agrees, like, yeah, I, I don't want to be fucking seeing this right now. I, I can't handle this. And so the jinn grants the wish by fusing the man's eyes shut so he can't see anymore. Okay, so see, now, this is a wish that he grants that I can kind of agree with because he asks if he wishes this to be something he doesn't want to see. And the guy agrees. So like the genies, the, the gin's been fucked up with his wishes, but right here, I, I feel as if it's worded properly. So it's like, mm, okay, I, I, as much as I don't want to, I can agree with this. Like, yes, technically the guy did wish for that. So this was a very, this wish could be left up to like left up to interpretation. So like, like, yes, he did get what he wished for, but still like you could have just teleported me to another room. Like you could have just done that. So the djinn steals the face of the dead body at the morgue and he takes on the appearance of that man. And he goes by the name Nathaniel Demarest. 
Uh, I said I would mention this later. This is later. Um, Brian Demarest at Evil Flynn on Twitter. I don't know if your last name is actually Demarest or if you just really like Wishmaster and you decided to make that name yours on Twitter. Like, my name's not half black Philip. Like, my name's not half black Philip. Like, my name's not Philip. I am half black. But on Twitter, my name is half black Philip. So I was wondering if that's like your situation. Is your last name actually Demarest? Or do you just really like Wishmaster so much? You're like, hmm, mine. So, so he now has a human form as opposed to his previous demonic looking form, which like, you know, I guess, yeah, you're right. You know, living in 1997, you can't really go walking around like a demon anymore. Uh, most people aren't really going to like accept that. So like after taking on a new face and appearance, you know, new face, new me, we see Nathaniel, he's at a, he's at a store, he's buying a suit and he's talking to a sales clerk. Uh, like I said, this is a really fancy clothing store. And he speaks to the 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 person who works there. Her name's Ariela. And the conversation actually starts off well enough. And it's going well enough for me to think that this guy isn't, like, the biggest asshole I've ever met. He just, like, is a big asshole some of the time. But then at the register, when he goes to pay for the new suit, he asks... The new suit that he bought, um, he asks cash a charge. And... You know, the, the the employee says cash because when you're working at clothing stores like that, you're working off commission. So if you get paid, in, you know, if the customer pays in cash, you get your commission a lot sooner. So, of course, she says cash and he makes the money appear right betwixt her breasts. And I was like, man, I was rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. Like, I thought I thought you were going to be cool here because he, you know, he. He was going back and forth with her. Not that the banter was entirely good, but it's like, okay, cool. You're not a total fucking asshole. He is. He makes the money show up right in between her breasts. And yeah. So (laughs) what do you expect from a djinn who grants wishes in that kind of way? Like they're going to be a fucking asshole. So like asshole mode, right the fuck back on. And he comments on how beautiful Ariella is asking her, doesn't, doesn't it bother you? And she's like, what? That your beauty is going to fade one day. And that your beauty is actually going to fade day by day. Initially, she gives the real answer here, which is it happens to everyone. And he persuades her to wish for eternal beauty. And the djinn grants this wish by turning it to a mannequin. By turning her into a mannequin. And I just have to say... I hate this shit. Like, that mannequin that he turns her into isn't fucking beautiful. Like, it looks fine, but in my opinion, he didn't grant her a fucking wish. Like, uh, she's plastic, and that doesn't, plastic doesn't last forever. Like, you didn't grant her wish. Like, oh, don't you want to be beautiful forever? So you turn her into plastic? You did not grant the wish, Brian, Jin, Wishmaster. So I'm, you know, if there was a magical court, like I'm literally taking you there because uh, I don't like that. I really don't. After granting this wish, Brian, a.k.a. the Jin, is now on the search for Alex to grant her her three wishes. The Jin goes to the goes to the detective who spoke to Alex at the scene of Josh's death, Nathanson. He hopes to gain some information on where he can find her. And as... Brian Demarest speaks to the detective. The detective is like, mm, 
I'm not going to give some random guy all that info as well. He fucking should like, don't be giving strangers information on like, just, just don't do that. If you're a cop, don't do that. Honestly, if you side note, if you have a friend and some person asks you, Hey, can I have your friend's phone number? Talk to your fucking friend first. That's a bit. I think amongst the people that I follow and amongst the people who are going to listen to this, you probably already know that, but just in case you don't, don't you ever give anybody my information just don't i i will be very mad at you i will probably cut you off like don't give strangers my fucking information so yes anyway front note back to where we back to what we were talking about as the jinn and detective nathanson are talking the jinn notices that the detective keeps looking at someone else off in the distance and nathanson eventually explains that man is guilty as sin he's walked on seven counts meaning there are seven crimes this person has gotten away with and Nathanson fucking hates it. Nathanson explains that he'd like to be in a situation where everyone was an eyewitness to one of his crimes so he can be brought in on charges that would actually stick. And the Jin grants this wish to easily prove the criminal's guilt by having the criminal go on a fucking shooting spree inside that exact same police precinct where they're speaking at. Now, Nathanson kills the criminal, and in the chaos, the djinn finds Alex's home address off one of the police files that's just on his desk. Like, literally, there is so much chaos going on. There's a shootout. People are dying. Nathanson is busy because he's you know, has to focus on the shooter. And Brian Demarest, the djinn, you know, just literally, just so casually looks through the files on his desk and eventually finds the contact information for Alex. The person he's going to grant the three wishes to. I don't know why this information is so easily accessible to anybody who's there in that vicinity. But you know what? The Jin got what he was looking for and he leaves. Having acquired Alex's work information, he visits Nick, her boss, at Regal Auctioneers. He has a very great interaction here with the security guard who is played by Kane Hodder. Which I wasn't expecting that. I just... This movie has so many references and Easter eggs and like... Not cameos, but like horror icons in it. Like, I'm pretty sure an episode on its own could be dedicated to the Easter eggs. And I really love that about this movie. So we really get a showing of... This is where we really get a showing of the kind of power that the djinn has. We don't really get too many rules about how the djinn's power works. But we get a cool glimpse at what he can do. So the guard says, The only way you're going to get to Nick is through me. And I'd love to see that. And what the djinn does is he turns he turns the security guard into stained glass, walks through him, and completely shatters that glass. So he gets through him. Now, to me, this is not a wish to me. Like, I don't like this. Uh, <laughs> like, I'd like to see a world. I Like, I'd like to see the world. I wish my asshole was as tight as it was when I was 19. These are two totally different desires. So for you to like just grant a wish based on something that I want, nah, I don't fuck with that. I'm sorry. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> so the djinn finally, after getting through the security guard, finally makes it to Nick, Alex's boss. And this is where the djinn begins to ask like, hey, where can I find her? Where is she? What's up? Like, what's her phone number? What's her blood type? Like, is she single? Literally, like just... If you're going to, the Jin eventually claims to be like an old friend, but like you have a maximum of like two questions 
before I start wondering if you even know this person. Like, you got to say something like, oh, does she still live on Rosemont Avenue? Oh, okay, so you did know her before. You can't be asking me, like, oh, what's her phone number? You want me to give you your friend's phone number? That makes no fucking sense. So, yeah. So, the djinn continues to question Nick, and Nick facetiously agrees to help (laughs) in exchange for a million dollars. And the djinn is like, hmm? Okay, I can do that. You'll help me for a million dollars. I can definitely do that for you. So the next scene that we actually cut to is Nick's mother. She's about to board a plane. And before she boards the plane, she's asked if she wants to sign a life insurance policy should she happen to die while she's on the plane. And this life insurance policy is in the amount of $1 million. We see his mother sign the life insurance policy and that she's killed in a plane crash. This is why if you ever, if you are ever in a position to have a wish granted and you wish for money, you have to wish for it to be tax free and at the risk of no one. I'm sorry, I don't know when you're going to be in this situation, but I'm telling you now, tax free and at the risk of no one. Otherwise, this is exactly what's going to happen. You're going to wish for an exorbitant amount of money and what's going to happen a loved one is going to die and leave you with like an inheritance. So this is just, you know, take it from me. Wish more carefully. Yeah. Yeah. Do that. Back with Alex. We see she is at one of the basketball games for, you know, the girls that she coaches. And we see that Alex is using her sister's cell phone to contact the folklore professor, but she gets her answering machine again. Uh, A frustrated Alex returns the phone to her sister and continues to her coaching duties. After returning her sister's cell phone, we hear someone ask from behind, Excuse me, miss. Would you mind terribly if I use your phone? I'll be happy to pay for the call. Which is a a total fucking 90s thing that a lot of people probably aren't going to know what that even means these days. And you know what? I'm not going to explain it. (laughs) But it's the gin. And not knowing who he is, the sister definitely agrees to let him use the phone. And we know this is all a ruse, simply to find out who was the person that Alex called. And this is where the djinn finds out it's Derleth. Upon finding out, okay, great, that's the person she spoke with, that's who I'm going to speak with next. And then the djinn returns the phone to the sister. And you know, one of the things that like, personally always trips me out is how do characters who find themselves from in the present day like how do they know what the fuck is going on how the fuck do they know how anything works like we get something like this in the 1970s movie blackula where blackula is more insulted at the fact that like a car almost hit him as opposed to like shitting his pants that a car almost hit him it's like why are you acting like you know what a car is? Like, so I just I just know that, like, this is all projection, but, like, if I was thrusted, like, a month into the future, I'd fully be prepared to, like, not have an understanding about how, like, anything works. So, yeah, that's just me. We're, we see the djinn is at Dirtlet's home, and we just know at this point nothing good is going to come of this. Alex is contacted by phone and it's Detective Nathanson and he tries to inform her that somebody was looking for her at the precinct 
And it's at this point where this exchange is happening is that the jinn decides to claim what he is owed, the souls of those he has granted wishes to. Due to her psychic mental connection with the jinn, Alex sees everyone who has interacted with the jinn get their souls taken away. So the guy at the morgue, the person who worked at the clothing store, the homeless man, uh, Josh from earlier, everybody is getting their souls taken from them. The jinn, having his first direct contact with Alex, informs her, only you can free them. Having done some research, Alex understands that he's coming for her, and he's coming to grant the wishes of the one who awakened him. Alex is finally able to get a hold of Durlith at her home so she can gain more information on how to defeat the djinn. As they're talking and she explains, Alex explains to Durlith that this djinn has been released from his gem. He's granting wishes, taking souls, and he's now at full power to where he can grant Alex's wishes and bring his homies back from the in-between. We see something slightly different where Durlith responds with, it's the 20th century. Don't you think that sounds just a little unlikely? And this is this is not the same Durlith that we were speaking to earlier because in their in their earlier conversations Durlith was trying was Durlith was trying to get the point across, the folklore professor, she was trying to get the point across that this isn't Robin Williams. This was something feared by everyone at one point. So we see here, some, something that I appreciate is Durlith does appear to have some sort of respect about what she's talking about. So there's the respect that Durlith had that doesn't appear here anymore. Alex doesn't realize she's talking to the djinn. The djinn has killed Durlith and taken her form. She only finds out after she tries to leave and the djinn forcefully tells her to sit down. The djinn finally confronting Alex, offers her her three wishes that she's entitled to. He tries to entice her by telling her she can have anything she wants. A trip to the moon, a visit to Pharaoh's Egypt, he offers, which, like we now know, he's probably just going to put her on the moon with no suit, with no way to get back to Earth. And probably Pharaoh's Egypt, but like, during the ten plagues. And in the spirit of fair play... He offers her a free wish just to see what would happen, which I'm not, mm -mm, you're doing all this. I'm not ex a free wish. I don't believe you. So she wishes for him to shoot his fucking brains out. And since he's immortal, the gunshot fails to do anything other than just annoy the fuck out of him. Now, honestly, this is where she fucked up because the man just went from college professor, creepy looking man to full on demonic looking entity. Like, why would you ever try to get rid of him by using such a simple fucking wish like you gotta wish for something like i wish you didn't have any power or i wish you were never born mm. so using her first official wish alex wishes to know what he is the djinn teleports her to his hellish world within the gem which absolutely terrifies her as he boasts his evil to her in the Nightmare Gem world, we see the people who have had their wishes granted by the jinn suffering tremendous torment. They're all tied up. One person is being whipped. One person only has half of their face. 
Another is covered in cuts as if they've been given 20 lashes. One man is set up to look like a living autopsy. Making sure she sees all of this horror, he says, I am this. I am the cry of the abandoned child, the whimper of the whipped beast. I am the face that stares back at you from the shadow. I am despair. Alex uses her second wish to return back to her apartment immediately, clarifying without the gin. She's learning. All right. Clever girl. Alex is back at her apartment instantly, and while while she tries to look for her sister so they can get the fuck out of Dodge, she sees a note. The note she, the note she sees says that her sister's going to be at the party uh, hosted by Robert England, uh, Beaumont. It's the party that Alex was invited to earlier because the they were going to celebrate the acquisition of the antique item, but the party's, you know, show must go on. Yeah, and after after this, this is when um, Alex leaves to go to the party because she knows that's where she has to go find her sister. And this is where the djinn follows, disguised as his human form, Nathaniel Demarest. Alex, panicking, rushing, is still trying to reach her sister as she's in her car on the way to the party, is still not able to reach her sister successfully, but does eventually get to the party. She tells the doorman, Johnny Valentine, who played by Tony fucking Todd. I didn't want to mention that he was in this movie earlier because I think there's only one thing better than expected Tony Todd, Tony Todd, and that's unexpected Tony Todd. So um so what Alex says is she pre- she pleads to the doorman keep that man Nathaniel the Jin from getting into the party because he's trying to kill her. Now Johnny Valentine lets Alex into the party thinking nothing of it like whatever crazy woman I mean your name's on the list so go and the djinn eventually manipulates his way into the party by asking Valentine like isn't there anything that you want more out of life or is this simply all that you pictured for yourself to be working security at some asshole's party and he eventually gets Valentine to make a wish that to escape I'd like to escape. Now, we know as viewers what Johnny meant was he wanted to escape his daily routine of working these gig jobs, being security for some asshole's party. However, the djinn, being who he is, decides, uh, uh, grants the wish by putting Johnny Valentine in a Chinese water torture cell. And this is the kind of cell where it's basically a tank of water, Johnny Valentine is in a straight jacket, so not only does he have to escape from the jacket, but if he wants to escape from his water prison, he needs to escape that as well. I think he said, the djinn says, Houdini did it in two minutes, and like walks into the party. And just personally, I just have to say, I don't agree with the way that the djinn is granting wishes, because like if someone wishes to escape... I don't think that putting them in a situation where they need to escape from, I don't think that's granting their wish. Like, I don't agree with you there. Like, the djinn has said at this point several times, like, to word your wishes more carefully, but, like, I don't agree with how the djinn is doing business in this case. Like, I just think he's being a total fucking asshole. Like, 
How are you going to allow someone to wish for an escape, but then put them in a situation where they have to escape from? I don't like it. So at the party, Alex rushes to find her sister in order to get them to leave as soon as possible. And meanwhile, the djinn, having made his way to Robert England's character Beaumont, charms Beaumont with tales of old and gets him to wish his party was unforgettable and thus causing the djinn to cause absolute chaos. This is exactly like the scene we saw in the beginning of the movie where everyone in the castle was impacted by the wish that the emperor made. We see a woman say, you can see right through me, which causes her to turn into pure glass. And then she explodes into a bunch of shards hitting the nearby attendees with brutal force. We see a lot more. We see a lot more as a statue comes to life and kills a guest. A piano plays by itself, people spontaneously combusting, and while all the guests are panicking trying to and meanwhile this is all while the guests are panicking trying to escape. Eventually the djinn corners the sister amidst the panic and attempts to scare Alex into making her third wish. She laughs, asking, what are you going to do? Kill me? And the djinn responds with, I don't need you dead. I just need you to wish you were. Holy fucking shit. Because for me, this is the kind of thing that makes me believe the entire time the, the djinn has been playing nice. Everything we've seen up to this point was him being good cop, not the bad cop. He tries to yet again have her make her wish by trapping her sister Shannon into a burning painting. If you've ever seen the movie The Witches, it's very that. Somebody gets trapped into a painting. And while we can't see what's going on other than the painting itself, they're still living this entire tortured life inside the painting. We don't have access to that. So knowing that she needs to make her wish now, she takes a moment to think. She's thinking. She's catching her breath. She's gathering her bearings. And she wants to make sure that the wish, her final wish that she makes is the right one to make. And this is where we hear her say, I wish Mickey Torelli had not been drunk at work two days ago, which the djinn is forced to. To grant. And what this does is it undoes all of the events that followed the destruction of the shadow of the, excuse me, the destruction of the statue and traps the djinn back into the fire opal from which it came. We see a now sober Mickey Torelli lowers the crate from the boat with no problems. The boat is successfully low. The the artifact is successfully lowered from the dock and put into Beaumont's possession with no issues. And the only reason this stone came, like the only reason people know this stone exists was because the statue broke and the stone was stolen from the broken statue. So because it never broke, the events that took place after never happened. Alex visits Josh the man who kept asking her on a date even though he claims they were friends. He's now alive again. And he notices that Alex seems quite pleased with herself, and she doesn't explain why. It's because she knows what happened. She knows what she prevented. She knows her wish came true. 
everything she had to deal with is no longer a problem. And we cut to inside of the jewel, in the statue of Ahura Mazda, now in Beaumont's private collection, and the djinn sits on his throne, waiting, yearning to be released. And that is 1997 Wishmaster. Uh, thank you so much if you made it this long, because this movie is, uh, um, to quote Brittany, somebody who I, you know, have become friends with due to the Podmortem disc- Discord. Uh, Brittany said this was a fucking fever dream of a movie, and quite honestly, you're right. It is. I want you to watch the second one. I want you all to watch the second one. I want you to watch this one if you haven't. But that's Wishmaster. That's Anthony and Jerome reviewing a movie, and I really hope that I was able to bring to you a good enough amount of detail that makes you want to watch it without spoiling too many things. And maybe I did spoil too many things, but I will tell you, if you watch this one, part two is better. And maybe I'll talk about that one. But yeah, uh, now, <laughs> uh, time to unwind. I don't know, man. Uh, Wishmaster, I think, you know, be careful what you wish for. Honestly, you got to be careful. You know, I I just think it's really funny how people don't understand. Sometimes you're living in circumstances that you totally wished for. Like, you know, I knew somebody who, like, she wished and she wished and she wished she had three kids. However, uh, she has a kid with her husband and her husband had two other kids and she took, she adopted them. So, like, what she meant was she wanted three kids with the love of her life, but she has three kids because she had kids with a man and has taken care of his other two now. So, you know, there's me wishing life would be easy and then ending up in a situation where, <laughs> uh, you know, a broken leg and now I can't move and all I have to do is wait for people to, like, bring me my snacks or something. You know, life is definitely easier, but, like, now I have a broken leg and I can't move. So, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I might erase that part. But Wishmaster 1997, I'd love to know if any of you have seen that movie. This movie, it's not the greatest, but I saw it at a very young age it scared me at a very young age and because of this movie i partially i don't know you know because of this movie i kind of police how people wish let's put it that way if somebody says oh i, I wish i had pop tarts a word you wish you had pop tarts okay and so wishes wishes are just a very interesting thing wishes clearly it's part of my whole thing there's literally a genie's lamp in the artwork so like wishes clearly something i love fucking with i love i just i love the whole idea of you like you have to say these things correctly otherwise some malevolent spirit might grant your wish in a way that suits them better than it suits you so i think we're gonna cut it here for now this is probably the longest episode i've done yet like I said, I'm trying something new here. Uh, <laughs> this is me and Jerome discussing movies. And this is how I'm going to try to do my movie reviews. If I can, you know, if this ends up working out, this is probably how I'm going to do my movie reviews. Where me, Anthony, the host, just goes through the story. And then Jerome, the drunk one, is the one who chimes in, giving us just some extra tea, details, opinions. Um, yeah, I'm Anthony Jerome M., you can follow me on Twitter, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, 
J-E-R-O-M, another capital M. This is Fuck You Hexed, and be careful what you wish for. Bye. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Gone, gone the form of man, rise the demon, Hexagon.